All right, does everybody have your outline out? You'll need that today. You want to have a pen? Again, I put all the verses that we're going to use today on our outline. We're going to begin this new year by talking about the subject of Bible prophecy. I think it's something that's very important for us. We live in a very unique generation. If you go, I'm not into Bible prophecy, well, then just file this under stuff that you just got to know. So it's very, very important. And I'm excited about this. Now, you need to know a few things. First of all, or probably the main thing that you need to know is that because we're talking about Bible prophecy, the Bible says some things. And, um, and so some of the things that I say can be uh, perceived as being very offensive. You and I live in a politically correct world, but we read a very politically incorrect Bible. And so when I share some things, the, the intent is not to create friction, but hopefully to shed some light as we go. So hopefully that will be taking place. You and I, uh, as we read the Bible, we see that the Bible talks a great deal about this time period known as the last days or the end times. And uh, the Bible says so much. And I want to just share a couple of verses even before we jump in that kind of sets the stage for everything that we're going to talk about. But there on the screen, the disciples come to Jesus in Matthew 24, and this is just a few days before the crucifixion. And the disciples come to him and they ask three questions. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? and the end of the age. They had rightfully paired the end of the age with his coming. And so they want to know, what is it that we need to be looking for? What is the sign of the coming? And Jesus answers their question. And the first words out of his mouth is he says, I'm going to tell you what it's going to look like, but here's what you need to know. Jesus answered and he says, watch out that no one deceives you. Now I want you to pay attention to the word deceive uh, because it's going to be bold in, in all of the verses. So watch out that no one deceives you for many will come in my name claiming that I am the Christ and will deceive many. His concern would be that those who follow him would be deceived on some things. Well, continuing in that same chapter as he continues to answer their question, sign of his coming into the age, he says, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. So they will claim to represent God, but the things that they say will be false and they will deceive many people. Well, a few verses after that, as he's still continuing, what's the sign of your coming and the end of the age? For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Now, here's what this means. There's going to be some who are going to be prominent enough in what we would say church circles or religious arena. They're going to have a prominent voice but they're going to say things that God does not say, but people are going to look at them and say, well, it's got to be right. Look at who's saying it, but they're going to be deceiving people. Now, um, so hopefully thus far in this, you've caught that the theme of the end times is that there's going to be a great deception. There's going to be deceit. Well, it goes on. Paul later on would write to Timothy and he's talking this through and he says, but the Spirit explicitly says, you can take this to the bank, 
that in later times, you can also translate that as last times, that some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. They'll be falling away because they're not looking at what the Bible says, sound doctrine. They're listening to what the Bible calls deceitful spirits and the doctrines or teachings of demons. Well, another time Paul would write to Timothy and he says, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. Now just notice it doesn't go better to better. It's from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I've been here for 22 years now, each week, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, teaching the Bible. I cannot find anywhere in our Bible where it says it gets better and better. Everywhere it says it's moving in a certain direction. And the great theme of all end times verses is a deception, a deception. So my role as a pastor, as I teach, is to make sure that we as Bible-believing Christians, are not deceived that we don't get caught up in some deception. You know, the problem with deception is that when you're deceived, you're deceived so you don't know that you're deceived. And so uh, we want to make sure, we want to highlight some things to make sure that we don't find ourselves being deceived. But, But that's the backdrop of everything that we're going to talk about. There's going to be a theme in the end times, and it's deception, deceit, deception, deception, deceive, deceiving. So keep that in mind as we go. Now, having said that, my journey is probably a lot like most of ours. You know, I I grew up in the church. I remember when I was five years old, I walked the aisle at Northwest Baptist Church there in North Miami, Florida, walked down to the front, front of the whole church, gave my life to Jesus and and, uh, understood what I was doing. So I I, I did that and, you know, went on. And when I was 13, I moved in with a family that became my family. And and, uh, they taught me the importance of being in God's Word on a daily basis. And so all through high school, you know, I was in God's Word. Sometimes I wasn't in God's Word. Sometimes I was really walking close with the Lord. Sometimes I wasn't walking close with the Lord. Sometimes I was really walking with the Lord. And sometimes I really wasn't walking with the Lord. Now, am I alone in this experience growing up? So, so many of us have, have been there, you know. And, and, uh, but I always believed, I always believed, it's not like I didn't believe, but then I went to college. And for the first time in my life, my faith was rocked. Because I began to hear different views and I was introduced to the concept of pluralism. Now pluralism, I'm just going to read the definition, it's not on your outline. Pluralism holds, it's a theory that there are more than one or more than two kinds of ultimate reality. So they would say, you know, what's true for you might not be true for somebody else. And what you might hold as ultimate truth, you know, they would hold that it's not ultimate truth. And so each one has their truth. And I remember this one professor, he had this great accent, and he would speak, and he says, there are many paths, and all the paths lead to God. Now you don't know that professor, but we can all agree I did a great rendition of what he said. <laughs> And so he, he would say, and they would say that God has revealed himself in many ways. And all the religions are just a manifestation of the same God. You know, after all, they're all saying the, the same thing. Well, I struggled with that because I knew that all religions did not say the same thing. 
And so as a student of comparative religion, as I began to study, I discovered some things. Again, not to create friction, but maybe to, to share some, some light. I want to share with you a couple of verses from my copy of the Koran. You can find this online. I put it there on your outline, but just to kind of illustrate what we're talking about today. Do all the religions point to the same God? Do they all say the same thing? Well, the Quran is, is uh, organized around what's called surahs. You and I have books of the Bible, chapters and verses. Well, they have verses, but their surahs are kind of like chapters. They don't have books per se, but they have chapters. So in the fifth surah, in the 51st verse, there in your outline, it says, O oh, you who believe, do not take the Jews and the Christians for friends, for they are friends of each other. And whoever amongst you takes them for a friend, then surely he is one of them. And surely Allah does not guide the unjust people. So you, you don't take, as a Muslim, you're not to take Christians and Jews as your friend, but what do you do with them? Well, that same surah, the fifth surah, says this. It says, the punishment of those who wage war against Allah and his apostle and strive to make mischief in the land is only this, that they should be murdered or crucified or their hands and their feet should be cut off on opposite sides or they should be imprisoned. And this shall be a, as a disgrace for them in this world and in the hereafter they shall have a grievous chastisement. So cut off their hands, feet, murder them, crucify them, and then when they go into eternity there is a grievous chastisement. That is the, that we go to hell. That is very different than when you and I read our Bible and it says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's saying very, very different things. So I look at the Middle East and I see uh, ISIS, and hopefully we're not seeing so much of that now, but you know, we've seen some things. And you go, why do they do that? Why do they do that? Well, if you go to the 47th Surah, it would just say this. When you encounter the infidels, that's you and I, non-believers in Islam, strike off their heads, underline that, until you have made a great slaughter among them, and of the rest make fast the fetters. Make fast the fetters. So when it says strike off their heads, when you see ISIS go into an area and it says make a great slaughter, you know, you, you see a great deal of beheading going on. They would say we're just doing what our book says. We're not actually being radical Muslims, it's just what the book says. And so that's why they do that. Now what's interesting to me is that you and I are going to be talking about end times prophecy. When you get into the book of Revelation, there's a time period called the tribulation. Now that tribulation, there's going to be a religion as the church is removed, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks, a religion that becomes very prominent. And so in the time period of the tribulation, it says this there on your outline, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. I have a theory as to what religion becomes very prominent in that time period when the church is removed. That's a story for another day. But in that little 47th surah it says make fast the fetters. What that means is to put them or make them slaves. So if you followed that and you looked a little bit closer, you, you saw that uh, ISIS would have open slave markets of Yazidi and, and Christian women, and they would just sell them back and forth. There are open slave markets in Sudan. There are right now 20 million plus 
slaves in Africa who are bought and sold in slave markets, and all by those saying, we're just doing what the book said. And, uh, and so that, you know, it's very, very different than what Christianity teaches. Now some would say, wait a minute, there were some in our country that practiced that and did some things. Well, here's the thing that you need to know, and uh, don't miss this, but Paul is writing to Timothy, and Paul's talking about this is what a Christian is, this is what a Christian is not. This is what a Christian looks like, this is what a Christian does not look like. This is what they do, what they don't do, and how do you know the difference? So there on your outline, Paul is writing, he's defining that. He says, for adulterers and perverts, and what's the next thing there? slave traders. You want to underline that? And liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine says. And I'll let you look it up and read what it says. But the point is that Paul is saying Christians do not do that. Christians do not do that. And so there are some who claim to be Christian who did that, but Jesus would say, I don't claim them. I don't know them because my people don't do that. And when you look through church history, we have a terrible uh, reputation of some things in the past. But if you read the Bible, you'll find that Christians do not boil people in oil. They do not burn people at the stake. They do not seize other people's property uh, because they disagree, and they don't trade people. And, And even though they might claim to be a Christian, Jesus would say, they don't belong to me, even though they call themselves that. Does that make sense? So this is very different what we see as we've read those verses in the Quran from Jesus' words where he would say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What I've shared is not taken out of context. You can look that up. It's on, online and you can go and read it anywhere. So when we first started the church um, all those years ago, um, I, I remember seeing there was this online advertisement talking about, hey, check out Islam and send us a free, you know, let us know and we'll send you a free book. So I'm like, free book? I got to have it. So, um, so I, I sent away and they sent me a book and it's by uh, Suzanne Hanif, a Muslim, and it's just what everyone should know about Islam and Muslims. And so and it articulates Islamic teaching. So you come over to verse, page 177 and it talks about Jesus and it says, the Quran states emphatically in passage after passage, that Jesus is not God's son. He never claimed to be God's son or of divine nature, but rather charged his followers to worship God alone. And that the notion of the Most High having a son is so totally degrading to and far removed from the exaltedness and transcendence of God's divine nature that it actually constitutes an awesome piece of blasphemy. Um, so they, they say that to say that God has a son would be not just, you know, it's, it's an awesome piece of blasphemy. Now that's interesting to me because uh, they say that he never claimed to be God's son and, uh, and that it would, be, it would be blasphemous to say that. But you know, I, I've read the Bible and so I'm familiar with some of the things that Jesus said. So there's one verse that we're all familiar with, John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking and Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So they say he never claimed to be God 
uh, or the Son of God, and it constitutes an awesome piece of blasphemy. Now that's interesting because John the Apostle would say this there in your outline. John says, this is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So Islam considers it blasphemy to say that Jesus is God's Son or that God has a Son. And the Bible, on the other hand, says that anybody who denies the Son uh, isn't just a little bit off on their theology, that's actually the spirit of Antichrist. So they're, they're very, very different in their teachings. Now I did find this one thing, this is not mockery, it's just uh, for insight, um, but you might find it interesting. Page 145, it talks about husbands, how do we deal with our wives who can be somewhat challenging. So, which is interesting, this is written by a woman, Suzanne, Suzanne Hanif. So those who are difficult, speaking of the women, unresponsive, or incapable of mature behavior, do not always respond to good treatment. Hence, men are permitted to show their displeasure to such recalcitrant wives by first verbal admonition, then leaving their beds, and finally, a token beating. But this, by the prophet's own order, is to be of such mild nature that it does not hurt or inflict harm, but rather serves to show a woman who cannot be reached by any other means that the situation is now serious. I'm moving on. (laughs) My point is, my point is, in teaching and in practice, Islam and Christianity are diametrically opposed to one another. So, So what this means, this doesn't mean that the Quran is bad and the Bible is good. Uh, it could be that they are both wrong. That's, a very, that's certainly a possibility. Um, it could be that one is true and the other one is false. But it can't be that they're both true because they say very different things. So if love your enemies is right, then take not Jews nor Christians as your friends would be wrong. If they're both right... You have a God who says to this group, cut their heads off, don't be friends with them. And then to his other people, he says, now you just forgive them and love them and pray for them. I can't worship a schizophrenic God like that. Do you agree with that? Yeah, you can applaud for that. You can applaud for that. So so the point that, that, that I want to make is we do not worship the same God. But do you remember the verses that we showed of the last days that it would be deception, deceit, deceiving? And there are people in church who believe it's really all the same God. That is a manifestation of that last day's deceit. You don't want to be in that belief system because that would be a deception. And it doesn't matter what world religious leader stands up and says it's really all the same God? That would be a false teacher, a false prophet who is deceived and deceiving other people who follow him. Does that make sense? So for me, I wanted to find out what can I put my hope in? Because they all say very different things. And as a, a believer, 
I notice that Jesus makes a very bold statement. Jesus says, said, uh, he says there in your outline, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus claims that there is no other way to God but through him. So how do I know? Is it just blind faith? Well, blind faith doesn't work for me. There has to be some way that I can test it and see that it's true, not just because it feels true or you know, it seems right for me. So the question is, is there a test? Is there a way that maybe the Bible or whatever book is true can self-authenticate to say that this is true and, and, and only something that the Bible could do and no other book of faith could do? Well, God gives a challenge and a test, and he says, here's how you will know. There in your outline, he says in Isaiah, I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning from the ancient times, what is still to come. God says, here's the test. I'm going to tell you on the front end what's going to happen. And because I'm God, I'm the only one who can do this. And when it happens 100% the way that I said, you'll know that I'm God because nobody else can do that. You and I, uh, are Christians are the only faith that's based upon what's called predictive prophecy. God said it, it happened, therefore we believe it. It's not blind faith. It's, it's, it's he, he, it came true just as he said. And this is something that changed my life. And I want to share this in a way, um, hopefully that makes some sense, because you, you need to have in your faith, you need to have a solid foundation. So um, as we look at this aspect of prophecy today, in what you and I would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, for about 1,500 years, those who would be writing that were all given certain aspects of this coming Christ, the coming Messiah. And each one of them would be given certain details, and they wrote that down. So when the Messiah came, he had to fulfill all of those details. Let me just show you how this works. It'll just take a couple of minutes. But in Isaiah, now this one's a freebie. Uh, I just always have to use this verse. If you've been here, you'll know why. But in Isaiah, it talked about how when this Messiah came, he would be God. It says there in your outline, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called the Wonderful Counselor, and then you always want to underline Mighty God or Eternal Father, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Bible tells us that when this one would arrive, he would be born as a child, but he'd be more than a child. He'd literally be the mighty God, the everlasting Father. And so all Christians believe that Jesus is God. Everyone else believes that Jesus is not God, and that becomes the dividing line. So I I put that out there. That's kind of a freebie. But about 700 years before Jesus was born, through Micah, we were told where he would be born, that he'd be born in Bethlehem. So it says there in your outline, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, and I've underlined, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. He will be born in Bethlehem, but he will have existed from everlasting. That was their way of saying he's God. Only God exists from everlasting. Now here, here's the part that many times we miss. Bethlehem is a tiny little village in that day, somewhere between three and five acres. Most people agree that there was probably about 200 people. Uh, could be less, at no more than 300. 
but probably about 200 people who lived in that village. He had to be born there. Well, in 500 BC, we were told that he had to present himself as a king, but he'd do it differently than most. He would present himself as a king riding on a donkey. There in your outline, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. I've underlined endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not many kings reveal themselves riding in on a donkey. Uh, He would do this in a very, very humble way. But what's interesting there is that this particular king would be bringing salvation with him. Well, 500 BC, it was written that he would ultimately be betrayed by 30 or with 30 pieces of silver. Notice this on your outline. Zechariah would say it like this. I said to them, if it's good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels or 30 pieces of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I, this is the Lord speaking, was valued by them. They sold me, the Lord, for 30 pieces of silver. So I took the 30 pieces, shekels of silver, and I threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. So we know how that story goes. Well, Another place I've always found interesting is that a thousand years before Jesus was born, it described his crucifixion. In Psalm 22, and you want to read Psalm 22, and as you read it, picture somebody being on the cross, nailed to the cross, and they're looking down and they're describing what's going on around them. A thousand years before Jesus was born. And it says this there in your outline. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have, and I've underlined, pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. And then underline, they divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. A thousand years before Jesus was even born. Uh, When it says they pierced his hands and feet, what was the form of execution a thousand years before Jesus was born in ancient Israel? It was stoning. Crucifixion, the piercing of hands and feet, won't be invented for another 700 years. He describes it 700 years before he's even born. A thousand years before he's even born, or 700 years before it's invented. And then it says they throw dice, they cast lots for his clothing. And we all see that there at the crucifixion. Now during the crucifixion, again a thousand years before uh, Jesus is even born, it says this, Psalm 22 begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. As you read the gospel account, direct quote, direct quote of what took place. Now, another interesting detail is that Daniel, the prophet, told us 500 years before Jesus was even born, 560 years before he's born, that whoever this Christ Messiah is, he's going to have to die before Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. See, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 70 AD. So notice how it says it. The Messiah will be cut off. The word is karat, in Hebrew it means to be killed or executed, and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city, Jerusalem, and the sanctuary. That's the temple. 
and the end will come with the flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. A lot more going on. But the Messiah will be killed, cut off, before the temple is destroyed, 70 AD. Isaiah would say it like this. He'd say uh, uh, he'll be buried in a rich man's grave. And this is about 800 years BC. It says, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Now that's interesting because if you study crucifixion, in order to add to the shame of it, they would not bury the bodies. They would just discard the bodies. And, uh, but you know the story. Joseph of Arimathea is a very wealthy man. He goes to Pilate as Jesus is crucified and he says, I want the body and Pilate gives it to him. So Jesus' body is not discarded. It goes into a rich man's grave. Now I grew up knowing all of those verses. I knew them all, but they never really connected with me why they're so significant until somebody explained it to me just like this. And uh, hopefully this will make sense to you as, as it clicked with me. And once it did, it, it changed my life. But these were all given hundreds of years, a thousand years before by a number of different people, and he had to fulfill all of them. So if I were to come to you and say, we're looking for a guy, and uh, this guy was born in Denison, Texas. That'll be the first detail. Denison, Texas. So you go, how many people were born in Denison, Texas? Well, it's a small town, you know, maybe a thousand, two thousand people. So we're looking for a guy born in Denison, Texas, but he was born in 1961. Well, in 1961, Denison, Texas only had 22,000 people in it. So how many people were actually born in Denison, Texas? Maybe 200 tops. Uh, Half of those would be boys, and so maybe a hundred. So we're looking for a guy. Two details. Denison, Texas, born 1961. But this guy that we're looking for, he was raised across the country in Miami, Florida. So how many guys were born in Denison, Texas, 1961, who were raised in Miami, Florida? Not that many. Let's get into one more detail. Looking for a guy born in Denison, Texas, 1961, but raised on the other side of the country in Miami, Florida, but goes to seminary across the country in Indiana. How many guys were born in 1961, Denison, Texas, raised in Miami, who'd go to a seminary in, in Indiana. Not that many. becomes narrower and narrower. Does that make sense? Let's add a detail. So we're looking for a guy born in Denison, Texas, 1961. He's raised in Miami, Florida. He goes to seminary in Indiana, and he marries a girl named Cheryl. Would you say it's becoming more and more narrow? All right, let's go on. So looking for a guy. Denison, Texas, 1961, raised in Miami, Florida, goes to seminary in Indiana, marries a girl named Cheryl. Together, they have 12 children. (laughs) Would you say as it becomes more and more details, you know, the specific, it becomes more and more narrow. It can't be anybody other than me. Let's add a detail. So looking for a guy born in 1961, Denison, Texas, 1961, raised in Miami, Florida, goes to seminary in Indiana, marries a girl named Cheryl. They have 12 kids together, and he pastors a church in Jupiter, Florida. (laughs) Would you agree I give you seven details of my life? And on those seven details, you have to conclude that of all the billions of people who've ever existed on the planet, I'm the only one who could fill those details. Does that make sense? So let me give you one more detail before we go a little bit further. Looking for a guy. 1961, Denison, Texas. Raised in Miami. Goes to seminary in Indiana. Marries a girl named Cheryl. 
has 12 kids together, pastors a church in Jupiter, Florida, and is very good looking. (laughs) Why is that funny? (laughs) It's my story. Here's the point that I want to make. Here's the point I want to make. God laid out, I gave you seven details. God says, I will make it so impossible to conclude that it's anybody else. I won't give you just seven details. I will give you over 300 specific details that the coming Christ, the Messiah, had to fulfill in order for you and I to say, he's the one. And if one of those was not fulfilled, we'd say, well, it's not God. It's not the Christ. It's not the Messiah. So God says, here's the test. Isaiah 46.10, he says, I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. And when I saw that, my whole life changed. I recognized that he could be the only one that could do that. So if he laid out so many prophecies concerning his first appearing, and those had to happen exactly as he said, one of the things that we find is that there's more than twice the amount of prophecies concerning his next appearing. Would he have to have those things happen just as he said? And I would hold yes, 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 he absolutely would. But there is a deception in those last days and many people will miss it. They'll absolutely miss it, even though it's happening just as the Bible said. So over the course of the next few weeks, here's what we're going to do. Uh, Today's more Prophecy 101, the foundation for prophecy, why we believe any of this. If this really happened, we can trust what's to come. Next week we're going to look at what we're going to call the big sign. Jesus would say that this is the trigger to the last generation. When this happens, you know that that begins the last generation. It's something that the entire world sees. It's something that the whole world is trying to deal with. Uh, But sadly, most people will miss the significance of this event, and uh, even people in the church will miss the significance of this event that only God could make happen. We'll look at that next week. Then the week after that, we'll talk about the uh, the last generation, what would be happening in the world that would be unique to that generation. Things that we've never seen in the history since Jesus was here on the earth, things that only that last generation would see. Then we're going to look at something, uh, a, a mor- moral situation, an immoral situation that will surround the household of the believer that will be very hostile to believers, and it's something that only appears in that final generation just before Jesus comes back. And what we're going to see is that some in the household of the believer, the household of the faith, will embrace that and it will be revealed that although they lived in the household of the believer, they were not really believers. And the Bible will lay that out with incredible precision. Then Jesus will dictate a letter to the last church. And in that last church, he's going to say, here's the reality, and here's some things that I've said that you don't even agree with anymore. And we're going to find that the church of the last days does not agree with Jesus. And we're going to teach that so that we don't fall into that deception. 
And then we'll see, is there the event that the Bible talks about that wraps up that generation, which leads into another time period called the tribulation. That event is commonly referred to as the rapture of the church. We would not believe it. We would not accept it if the Bible didn't talk about it so much in so many different ways throughout the Bible. So we're going to look at that. And then we're going to talk about something that I've never shared in church before, but there was something that the ancient Israel allowed into their country. And when they allowed this into their country, it was a practice. And Jeremiah the prophet is called to say, uh, because you've done this, uh, God has removed his blessing. It takes several decades for that to happen. The people were posting on Facebook in that time, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then God will restore. But God is saying, I'm not doing that right now. We'll see how that works out. And that nation, because they allowed this certain thing into their nation, is going in a certain direction. It's not the message that everybody wants to hear, but, and they're listening to the false prophets, and we'll see that, who are saying it's going to get better and better. But Jeremiah alone stands up and says, no, this is what God is saying, and we'll look at that. But then uh, I want to take a week and just look at what the Bible says about that last generation, uh, how you and I not just survive, but thrive, and how the Bible says we can prosper in that time, and we can be blessed in that time, and we can be a blessing to other people. But it doesn't come by embracing the deceptions that are coming upon that final generation. So as we close in prayer today, if you're here today and you believe in the Jesus who's one of the ways, but not the way, the truth, the life, just know that that's the end times deception. It's deceit. It's, it's being deceived. And, and I want to encourage you as we close in prayer today, you invite the Jesus of the Bible, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Invite that Jesus into your life and go forward with the Jesus of the Bible because the Jesus of the Bible can save you, but the one that's just one of the possible ways, that Jesus cannot save you. That Jesus can only deceive you. And so you want to do that today. And then pray that God opens our eyes as we go, that God reveals some things to us so we know how to discern the times and operate in this time. Let's pray. Jesus, as we conclude this, Heavenly Father, as we wrap this up today, we come to you and we ask, God, don't let us embrace the deception that's coming in the last days. We realize the worst part about being deceived is that we don't know that we're deceived. So open our eyes and reveal to us your truth. And as you open up to us your truth, help us to operate appropriately. Lord, for some of us who are here today, we have embraced Jesus as our way, one of the ways, but today we renounce that and we embrace the Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him who was born as a child but is also the mighty God, the everlasting Father. We invite that Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, 
to save us, to come into our lives. So we open up our hearts and our lives to you. We invite you in. We accept, we receive your forgiveness. And we trust your promise that where you say that when we open up, you'll come in and you'll never leave. And we pray that you help us to go forward with our eyes open, not deceived. Father, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for the things that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. And I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.